Christian Center. Uh, again, my name's Michael. I'm the associate pastor here, and our interim uh, head pastor is at the beach. He asked me to uh, preach for you all. I'm thankful to be able to come to you on the unofficial end of the summer uh, and preach to you. I believe what God has laid upon my heart, probably no more important that I have ever preached personally. Um, it's just simply titled Heart Check. Okay, so all of us kind of do a little heart check this morning, and, and God's Word, I think, has so much to say to us for that. Can I say thank you all so much? I could, we could go now, and my heart is totally full, and uh, the worship team, thank you, Matt, for um, not only blessing us with uh, worship, even hearing you say gooder, and, and God, this is that bless, bless my heart for anyone. If y'all know, my wife's an English speaker, and so personally, that, again, that, that blessed me. And thank you all for this. If you do not get one of these, this is so full. This next month is just wide open with stuff here at Bethel. Uh, some of it got spoke to this morning, but there's more actually in the bulletin compared to what was even said. So please do grab a bulletin if you did not get one already. I'm so excited. And I hope, uh, Ms. Lisa, that this morning, even if people are on the fence about reaching out with the emergency chapel, chaplain's uh, social, we've been to several of the fundraisers in the past and know the great work of the ministry there. But we pray that even by the end of this, if you're on the fence and you're like, oh, I knew I needed to do something, that that would be one of those things that you would plug into. Uh, it's a very great and worthy cause. Um, and with that being said, if I also could embarrass a, a buddy of mine, uh, Matt Chapman, who's here this morning. Uh, when I first came into this church, uh, I came with my roommate at the time, uh, 12, 12, however many years ago, and uh, he uh, came this morning to support me preaching. So thank you, Matt, for being here. Um, and uh, it's, a, it's a blessing, you know, for those that, that care. Uh, we were out playing basketball a week and a half ago, and I had mentioned it, and I had no thought in my mind whatsoever that he would be here this morning. So thank you for surprising me. With that being said, Matthew 25 is where we'll go to this morning. And this morning, uh, preaching to you out of a parable of the ten virgins, uh, I, I can't even really speak to all the different ways that I was impacted uh, in preparing this sermon, so many different resources and things that had kind of come together, but two of those uh, certainly that have had some influence on me. Uh, one is a book you, you may remember about a year ago when Pastor Dub Carricker, who used to pastor Christian Assembly, spoke here. He wrote a book called What is Church? Highly recommend it. You can get it on Barnes & Noble. I know he would appreciate that. It's, it's called What is Church by Dub Carricker. Uh, and then also a podcast, Soil and Roots, uh, Brother Matt's brother, Brian Fisher, uh, I guess we've been listening to that for over a year now, and it's, it's just a, a powerful uh, kind of deep dive, uh, a journey into our own hearts and understanding, you know, the ideas and things that influence us. You know, culture now is wrapped up in family of origin and all these different things that, you know, we're, we're seeking answers, but so often these things can impact us spiritually in ways that we don't even recognize, things that our heart um, may be kind of predisposed to or kind of have a stumbling block set up in our heart. And so it's, it's a Christian podcast, again, called Soul and Roots on Spotify. And that's something that I think even just for us understanding the church and discipleship and some of the big things that we talk about as a church, uh, it's, it's neat to, to kind of see these things worked out. And you, it's almost like it's just been workshopped, you know, uh, over a period of time. Um, so again, this morning I'll be preaching to you out of Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13, and, and kind of bounce around a few, a lot of different things. I was telling someone this morning, this is not going to be an eschatological sermon, an application sermon. So us looking at our hearts in light of this uh, parable, I think God has something very poignant to say to us this morning. Uh, would you go with me before we go into the word, uh, first to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, thank you. God, thank you, Lord that you are on the throne. God, I thank you, Lord, that you are worthy. God's brother Matt so eloquently said, Lord, that, God, that you are worthy of it all. 
of every worship and praise and honor. God, I thank you that you have laid all this out, Lord, that how you work in our lives providentially. I was speaking to Rick this morning and how you've worked in his life, and I know through Matt and years ago you worked through him in my life, Lord. Providentially, you work in our lives, Lord, even when we are so far from you. But I thank you, God, that you love us that much, that you pursue us, your goodness runs after us. God, and I just pray this morning that our hearts, God, that we would open up, Lord. That, God, there would be good soil, Lord, for your word, for the seed to, to go into that good soil. God, so that's my prayer this morning, Lord, that I would be put out of the way, Lord, that you would be exalted, that you'd be lifted up in this place, and that your Holy Spirit would come even now, Lord, and do a work in your people. God, I thank you that you've called us to a great, unimaginable purpose, God, here with this time that we have on this earth, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that we would, God, not miss it, Lord, that we would see, God, things as you see them, that we would be excited, God, that we would be impassioned, Lord, by the things that stir your heart. Would you let this be done? In Jesus' mighty name, amen. So this morning I'm reading out of the New English Translation. Any translation will work, uh, but this, that's where I'll be looking from in Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. A parable that is situated with, thank you. A parable that's situated within the Olivet Discourse, uh, the very well-known end times teaching that, that Jesus spoke of at the end of Matthew Really, it's chapters 23, 24, and 25, and we're just going to be looking at a single parable from that, if you would read with me, starting in chapter 25, verses 1. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of the virgins were foolish, and five were wise. When the foolish ones took their lamps, they did not take extra olive oil with them. But the wise ones took flasks of olive oil with their lamps. When the bridegroom was delayed a long time, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. But at midnight, there was a shout. Look, the bridegroom is here. Come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there won't be enough for you and for us. Go instead to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they had gone to buy it, the bridegroom arrived, and those who were ready went inside with him to the wedding banquet. Then the door was shut. Later the other virgins came too, saying, Lord, Lord, let us in. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I do not know you. Therefore, stay alert, because you do not know the day or the hour. This morning, again, the sermon is titled Heart Check, because I believe that's the application of this text. It's for us to be wise and to check our hearts now while the time is right. If you remember earlier in the year, I spoke to you on the cornerstone of the wise and the foolish builders. There's a lot of connection between the Sermon on the Mount and the Olivet Discourse, and there's so many different parallels you can put, but one of that is this theme of the wise and the foolish. I won't take the time to go through all the different aspects of how we can be foolish in our lives, and I went through many of that earlier in the year. But Jeremiah tells us that our hearts, ultimately, are dark. In many ways, they are unsearchable. In many ways, when you think about your own heart, you may say, okay, I need to 
come to Jesus. I need to make him Lord of my life. I need to accept salvation and have this personal walk with him. But we can go through life and have sections of our heart that are so walled off that we may not even realize it until a certain event happens or whatever comes about. I'm not going to go through the entire parable and break down all the symbols. I have heard sermons where you know this is kind of explained to the full nth degree. But I, what I will say is there are some important symbols in this parable for us to look at. It's a different time period, right? You're looking back into the time period of, of Jesus' day, and to know that things were different, right? That's an understatement, right? But a few basic things is these virgins are going to look to a bridegroom, okay? I believe this is a picture of the church. At least on some level, these ten are calling themselves Christians, Right? The understanding of this is to say they are looking for the bridegroom. So you can have wise and you can have foolish, but there's a, just a general expectation if someone would look at them, they would all associate them with the church. Now, one, one thing to say about this is, obviously, you know, the Bethel Christian Center, right? Church is not in the name of our church, but this is a lot of times what people think of as a church, right? They think of a building, okay? Well, if you know what Ecclesia and the scripture and the actual meaning in the Bible of church, it's not a building, certainly not. All right. It's not even often what we call church. It's the people that make up the kingdom of God. Right? That is the church. That's who we're called to be. And so when you look at these ten, in some ways they would be associated with the church. I believe from God's perspective, he knowing all things would look at them and say, oh, no, no, only half of them are the church. I, I, know, I don't know you, but some I do know you. Right? He knows all things. He's outside of time. And so it's hard for us to, we wrestle at times with understanding the scripture and our finite understanding. God, how can this be? And, you know, but for him, it's very clear. But from our perspective, saying, okay, there's 10 virgins going to go meet the bridegroom. On some level, there's an association here with the church. The other very important thing is the oil. Y'all know at this church, there's such a thing, right, as anointing oil, right? It's a symbol. In the, in the Old Testament, you see oil all over the place. And even in the New Testament, there's this concept, there's association of oil and the Holy Spirit, right? It's just a symbol, okay? But so much here, I believe that is what this symbol is pointing to, okay? The, the lack was the lack of preparation, right? The foolish were ready to go out and meet the bridegroom, but if he were to tarry, if he were not to be there right then, then they did not have enough oil for when the time would come. Right? How many of you know that Jesus has, has taken a minute to come back, right? And I believe that even this scripture and so many things in the scripture point to how this is all part of God's plan. This morning, I want to speak to you about some themes in Matthew, and I'd like to also speak to you about some of the things happening in the letters to the church of Thessalonica. But God himself is not confused by any of this. God knows exactly what he's doing. We're the ones, right, that might struggle or we might slumber, okay? But this morning, I pray that you will not slumber, that there will be no sleeping in this sermon, but even though Christ has tarried, this is, again, is a symbol of Jesus Christ taking his time, okay? And there's this passage of time, right? When you sleep, things kind of tune out, and you wake up, and it's later, okay? So, so I don't believe here that the, the sleeping is something that I've read so many different ways. Uh, even probably my strongest commentary I ran across was Matthew Henry, right, who was living even the time before uh, the country was founded. And even there, some of that, you know, eat meat, spit out the bones. I don't believe that the people that slept here, that all 10 of them were in the wrong for sleeping. It's just a symbol for the time passing. But what can be said about the oil? What can be said about the oil? 
I won't make much of this, but just for the sake of the younger folks here, y'all have seen Aladdin, you've seen the lamp, right? There's, there's a lamp with a handle on it. Many of you have seen an oil lamp. I remember growing up that one of my favorite memories, and recently here, that we had a great power outage. Um, if you don't have a generator, we were not even in town at the time, but the idea of the power going out for a significant period of time, for one thing, you don't have any light, right? Growing up, we had an oil lamp. We had an old oil lamp that you turn the, the wick, you trim the lamp, and you can set the light appropriately. I, as, as a child, I still remember so definitively, probably as a 10-year-old, being so excited that a hurricane was coming and just hoping the power would go out. Please. If you know anything about me, I'm all about games and fun and you know, these kind of things. So this was an opportunity for us to gather and to play a board game with the appropriate light needed. So... That's kind of the idea, right? There's oil in this lamp. And back then it would have been not as fancy as the old oil lamps that we're all associated with. These would have been a lot more of an archaic, kind of like an Aladdin-type lamp with oil, with a wick, right? And so you're lighting it the way you would light a candle, and then when the oil runs out, there's no more light. So potentially you need to bring extra oil depending on how much light you need. Okay, And so that's, that's the idea here. Well, for us, for the symbol, for the Holy Spirit, I believe the point is intimacy with the Holy Spirit. And when we're thinking about this in the sake of our hearts, this is not just something that's tied to a worship experience. This can be tied to anything that God's wanting to do in your life. And we'll come back to that in a minute, but a bigger theme here is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is a funny thing because you can't see it. We have no real understanding of what it means except we can see these different pictures that's laid out in the Gospel of Matthew all throughout. It's a huge theme. But the kingdom of heaven is what we're all called to be a part of. When we're in the church, when we are God's people, we're to walk and participate in the kingdom of heaven, seek for his kingdom to come here. And so it calls us to a different plane. Amen. It calls us to a different reality. We see things and we interact here, but we know that we're called to a higher, we're, we're strangers and we're foreigners, right, even in this land. This is something that we're to operate differently. We're to interact and to rub shoulders with anything and everything going on in this world for the sake of God's glory. But we know that ultimately, spiritually speaking, we're from a different place. So this kingdom of God is something that's constantly should be working on our hearts. And depending on what you've been through in your life, you may have gone through things that have made you very callous in certain areas of your heart towards the kingdom of God. You may be someone who's walked with Jesus, quote-unquote, your entire life, right? But maybe you have a stumbling block in a certain area where you have no clue. Now, maybe someone else could speak to it and tell you you might have a blind spot, but it's something that until certain things begin to happen, you wouldn't even know that you feel as strongly as you do about whatever the topic is, right? And you know that God feels like this, but oh, I have these reservations, right? Whatever that might be. And so for us, I think the challenge is for us to always desire for our heart, the entirety of our heart, to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. And so that's what I mean about intimacy with the Holy Spirit, for us to just be willing to be laid bare, to say, okay, God, search me. Because the, the passages here, when you read something about Judgment Day and things being kind of exposed, that's what the reality is. They'll be laid bare before God. But even now, guess what? He knows it all. He knows it all. 
And that can be so hard because I can be a very particular person, right? I have my ideas, and then I start talking to Christy, and she's like, you know, no, no, it doesn't have to be that way. I'm like, okay, right? It's one of those things where we can be so caught up, right? We can be so fixated on what we think is right, potentially something that we even think is glorifying to God, and then when we see it from another perspective, we're like, wait a minute, hold on. But I've been thinking like this for 20 years, you know? And it can be a challenge for us because so often we get conflated what is our will and what is his will. Our own perspective oftentimes becomes so that we start trying to make God in our own image instead of just looking at who he is, taking the word at face value and saying, God, yes, I know you, know, you love every person. God, somehow, Lord, you can take the absolute worst person imaginable and through your lens, you desire for them to know you as much as anything. Right? That's a very hard thing for us to get our minds around. Actually, this morning, it just kind of hit me. There was a, uh, a saying that I had, had run across, actually going through seminary and uh, making a portfolio of, of things. It was, it was on exercise in this particular part. The saying was, hustle beats talent when talent doesn't hustle. Right? So, so it's, it's a sports idea, right? But it is, is it, as passionate as I you know, feel about that saying, how much is that kind of so that you can relate to the kingdom of God? Right? And we're in the middle of this James series and faith and works and talking about the balance there. Right? We talked about a lot of the controversy last week and next week we'll talk about doing and hearing. Like what does that actually mean to live this faith out? But there's a balance that's very clear from God's perspective. And I'll take a minute and just a second to talk about some of this scripture in Thessalonians and how that works out. But with the kingdom of God, the irony is the most beautiful picture in Christ's eyes is the thief on the cross. Right? And there's specific parables that are written for us in our own human flesh. We're like, oh, well, that's kind of unfair, God. I've lived for you for all this time. Me, 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 me. Look at my, you know, look what I have done. And then all of a sudden this thief on the cross repents and follows Jesus. And he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. And the angels rejoice, right? In that way, that's God's grace, right? That's the beauty of the kingdom of God. And Matthew, the passage of the parable that we have read, what, did, what is Matthew's prayer in the scripture? He's the tax collector, and the Pharisees are all high and mighty, but this awful tax collector, right? Woe is me, for I am a sinner, right? Much of what Isaiah, the this, this song that I'm going to have us sing together in the altar time, he says, woe is me, right? Even though we don't stand in the same grasp as Isaiah, of, of like, woe is me, I'm a sinner, we should still seek for our heart to be in that spot, right? Just because Jesus is down on the cross doesn't mean that all of a sudden our heart's peachy king. Right? Our heart has deep things that we have to constantly seek to bring into the light. We have to seek to bring into the light. And so dealing with the faith and works, one thing I want to draw your mind to is the end times relatability to the Thessalonians passages. And Kristen, if you would put up the second Thessalonians. But if you know, if you have any familiar with the scriptures to the church at Thessalonica, some of the most important end times material comes from 
First Thessalonians chapter 4, don't freak out, Kristen, and we're not going to read that passage in entirety, but you have the idea of this, this snatching up, you have this idea of working quietly with your hands, and the funny thing is about that, specifically in the Faith Life Study Bible, this passage that she has on the screen, uh, speaks to how some of the hairy things that happens with human nature, right, could have been something that caused this prompting of the second Thessalonians scripture. It was, it was read, or it was alluded to recently, if anyone was not willing to work, neither should he eat. I don't remember if it was last week or which of the weeks in James it was referenced. But the question is, possibly with so much being said in the first letter to the Thessalonians about Christ and his return and us being caught up to meet him in the air. And then, wait a second, we're all ready, right? We're, we're taking care of the affairs of our heart. We're so excited to meet Jesus, and we're just going to sit on our rooftop and watch and pray, and that's it, right? And potentially some of that had happened. People were not even working, right? There was a, there was a struggle with just society continuing on because the Christians were just kind of, you know, maybe they were in a good spot in some ways, but things were not working out, you know, like they should. And the funny thing is, in those very original verses in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, it does talk about living a quiet and humble life, working with your hands. And so really, Paul goes into it with much deep, more intensity here, where he says, you know, I've said it to you, if anyone not willing to work, neither should he eat. Verse 11, for we hear that some among you are living an undisciplined life, not doing their own work, but meddling in the work of others. And the funny thing about that is in the original language, there's a pun going on there. So it's almost more like they're not being busy. They're just being busy bodies. How many of you know a busy body? Don't raise your hand. If you don't raise your hand, it might be one. That whole kind of thing, right? How many of you know a busy body? Okay. The problem is we can all tend to be like that unless we stay focused on God's purpose. I've always heard of idle minds of the devil's workshop. Right? So there is this sense of being busy as being a good thing, right? What are we working towards that God has called us to? How many of you know the work was not part of the fall? Adam himself was given this commission to work as a positive, as a good thing. Right? So even though you may not enjoy every aspect of work, right? Adam did not enjoy the thorns and thistles and all the sweat, right? but he did have this excitement, especially early on, naming the animals and all these things. The work was an exciting part of the commission. Right? And so we're all to live, not only working towards the Great Commission, but whatever it is that God's given you to do in the natural. Right? There can be a, there can be a and I will speak to this vocationally as well, God help us, those that stand in the pulpit and call this our vocation, because one of the most straightforward applications of this is, okay, there are people that are here and they're in the church, but their heart is so far from God. People that are working for the gospel and their heart's not in it. And on the outside, like, oh, yeah, look at the ministry and you know, all this, the influence. And God's like, no, I never knew you. And I'm big on, you know, not naming names and those kind of things. There's plenty of people that probably went through your mind. But to me, it's one of those things that it doesn't matter, right? The influence, it doesn't matter about the, the name calling, the tearing down. God can work through anything for his purpose, right? The kingdom of God is amazing because of the way God providentially moves. But God has his own perspective, right? And so he will take the benefit of some great ministry, right? And then say the leader of that ministry, I never knew you. Right. That's the way God works. Right. And it's not even about the size of the ministry. It can be our own heart. So this morning, I challenge each of us, right? 
whether you're at work, whether you're at school. It can be something that we can go through the motions, but Lord, help us to be a people of repentance. Lord, help us to be someone that's daily looking to follow God because this idea of walking with God in this sanctification, this growing closer to God, the moment that you think that you have arrived, you're in the spot of the foolish. And that's the most straightforward application of this. We know that we're to always be growing closer to God. We repent, we come to him, we ask him to be our Lord and our Savior, and that's just the front door. That's just the beginning. And then we're to seek to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord and Savior. And then we'll have a bad day. But what is a bad day? Is it a time where you stumble and you fall? And then you lay there, and you say, God, do you even hear me? Maybe I'll just give up on all this, right? Is that a bad day? Lord, help us. Because the issue here is the small, careless things that we could run into, if they're not dealt with in repentance and making this a daily walk, then that can drift farther and farther and farther. And so something that really wasn't that big of a deal, 10 years from now, maybe it's a bigger deal. Maybe all of a sudden now you have a major blind spot that you are going to make an idol in your life that you're not even willing to repent. Oh, they just have it out against me, right? And so, and so that's the challenge for us is to constantly be seeking to have his heart and his mind. I was going to save this for the, uh, the end, but I think I feel led to go ahead and break into it now. Probably the hardest thing and this is for me, but I think we can all relate to this. In the West, I think especially, we just have a really weird concept of enemies and what it means. Christian, if you would put up Matthew 5. This is also from the Sermon on the Mount, but I think it's the hardest thing for any of us to really put our hands around. What does it mean to love your enemy? You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. And let's stop right here for just a minute. For verse 44. In Luke, it goes on to elaborate on this and say, you know, be good to those that curse you. And there, there are several different ways this can play out. But this idea of persecution, right? We struggle with that. Luke kind of adds to it and just talks about even those that mistreat you, right? So we can all right? We can all relate to being mistreated, right? Or whatever we define mistreatment. A lot of times it might be something very petty, right? Something very, something the other person would have no clue they even mistreated you, right? But we, oh, I take offense to that, right? So we can relate to that. But this is where the gospel hits because we're to call to love God and to love our neighbor. And as an extension of loving our neighbor, we're to love and to pray for our enemies, Now, perhaps you don't have, like, I can't think of someone right now that I would say is my enemy, per se. But just think of someone that's hard to love. Right? Whoever that, quote, enemy picture is, right? Think of someone right now that's hard to love. And think all of a sudden, 
as opposed to just thinking about the Great Commission as being very narrow and telling people about Jesus, now my commission as part of making disciples and living this out, my commission is to love that person. Not just to check the box, yeah, I love them. I don't like them, but I love them. Loving them enough to pray for them. Loving them enough to pray for them. Right? What a challenge. What a challenge, because if you're like me, you can have your prayer life, and that can be good. It can have good days and bad days. But even if we're honest with ourselves, even when we're praying about noble things, it's things we want to pray for. I mean, how many of us are really good at praying for all the stuff we don't want to pray for? That's what he's asking us to do here. And what a challenge. What a challenge. And I think the hardest thing is praying for people that you don't even know. Because we make up enemies in our own mind because they are a certain way. Well, they're not in the church, and they have this, and they have that. You know, whatever the, whatever the, the marker is, right? And so we're really good at making enemies out of someone we've never even met. People groups, whatever, right? Just think about that for a minute. We're called to pray for those individuals. God, me? Right? What? right? That's a challenge. And so I think for all of us this morning, just in the idea of growing closer to Jesus, is this idea of saying, okay, God, before you, I'm already laid bare. So would I now willingly just lay it all bare before you? God, would I be willing to say, Lord, cleanse me, God, of anything that is short of your perfect will and standard? Even if it hurts me to be exposed to whatever it is. You probably can imagine this. I'm not a huge workout guy, but most of you can, can relate to the idea of working out, right? If there's no pain, there's no gain, right? There's no, there's no growth. I do know enough about working out to know that if you're doing a rep and it doesn't hurt, you're not really doing anything, right? There's no growth. The muscle's not breaking. There's no growth happening. It's the same thing when it comes to the matters of our heart and spiritually speaking. If you're going to actually grow in the Lord, it's going to cost something. It'll cost time. It'll cost a little bit of introspection. It'll cost a little bit of humility, right? All these things that are things that we don't want to deal with. God, put it there. Right? And so for us to be honest with God, it's going to be a little bit uncomfortable. But that's what God has called us to. When we're told in Luke to take up our cross daily, this is a picture of death, right? Thank God he's already died, so we don't have to, but then we're to daily follow him in just all these small things that amount to a huge, beautiful picture in the end. And I just think it's, it's beautiful, like the Thessalonians balance there between the work we think about like work and play, right? But the idea of the scripture saying, okay, you have the spiritual, even like the great antichrist passages, they're in these letters. You have these powerful pictures, right, of what we understand like the end to look like and these things are going to be happening. But then also the reality of like, if you don't want to work, then he's not going to eat, right? I mean, it's just like, it's just so straightforward. And the challenge to live a quiet life. How many of you know the struggle today when it comes to social media and whatever? And even if you're not someone who's actively on social media, like I myself keep myself distanced from that, you can't help but be impacted. 
And news travels so fast. I thought about this looking at the midnight cry, right? We all know that there has been news that all of a sudden you just weren't ready for, right? It could be something just surprising that you didn't know. It can be good. It can be very bad. But all of a sudden when you find out, it just totally shifts everything, right? Your paradigm, you're like, wait, what? You want to know more? Like, what's happening? And so that's how this news will be. And the good thing about the end is when you know Christ, this midnight cry will be an exciting thing. But at that point, it will also be bad news for many. And so hence the urgency, right? I believe it was so God-ordained for, for Peter to get up and preach at Pentecost and say, okay, preaching as if right now this is the end because that's how God has called us to live. Peter took that Joel passage and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he put, yes, in these last days because it is the church age is the last days. And if the church does not live as if Jesus could come back right now, then what are we doing? right? We're going to drift. We're going to go into this business as usual. We're going to drift into whatever is comfortable, right? I could give you a whole laundry list of things that I enjoy and think are comfortable, but what are we to do? What are we to do? And a lot of times that's a personal thing. A lot of the podcasts that I refer to is how just society and the West and the church and whatever, we have not done a great job. It's very hard for us to help you to be disciples. But what it does is it puts the onus back on the individual. What can I do in my own life to put myself in places with people that are going to push me to you? What does that look like? Because we all run here and there to and fro and whatever, right? As in the days of Noah. Right? I mean, we're all really comfortable with what that means. You can take it to the nth degree of what does it mean, but on the basic level, that's very, very relatable, and we get that. So my challenge this morning, and praise him, you can come. My challenge this morning is for us not to wait until the door is closed to take this seriously. My challenge this morning is for us to be a part of the wise group because we're saying, okay, God, search me. There's not a ton of work involved in the natural. It's a humility. It's a posture of heart saying, God, yes, Lord, I know you're speaking to me. I can grow closer. I can shake off the cobwebs. I can get over myself and put you in your rightful place. And so this morning, there's one more passage I want to read. And it's just to set a little context for the song that worked leads so beautifully. You are holy. I sang it last week. We could have stayed here forever. I thought it was going to come back right then. Isaiah 6, 1 to 4. And it starts off in the year of King Uzziah's death. And the prophet Isaiah, he had a, a shaking moment. There was a big, you know, like the news I talked about, right? There was a big happening. It would take the time to go into the detail there, but Isaiah looks and he says in his vision, this, this moment with the Lord, he saw the Lord seated on a high elevated throne. The hem of his robe filled the temple. 
Seraphs stood over him. Each one had six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. Two wings that covered their feet. And they used the remaining two to fly. They called out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. His majestic splendor fills the entire earth. The sound of their voices shook the door frames. And the temple was filled with smoke. And the beautiful thing about that, I'm stopping there because in this day and age, we live on the other side of the cross. And so in addition to that, we have Jesus Christ himself seated at the right hand of the Father. And yeah, our hearts are dark. This was a challenging sermon. But God's already done all the hard work. At the cross, he took care of it. And he knew you personally before the foundation of the world. And so this morning, in addition to that picture, we have Jesus Christ seated at the right hand of the Father. And when Stephen, the first martyr of the church, was being stoned for his faith, he looked up and he said, I see the Son of Man standing. He was welcoming him home. The only time you see the, the Son of Man stand in that, in that position where he's not seated was for him welcoming his child home. And so this morning, as we worship, I want this picture of heaven to be so exciting for you. That we can work and we can do this thing now in a real true and transparent way. If you were bothered by the original parable and the fact of the wise versions not giving any oil to the foolish versions, what is stingy, what in the world? There's something to be said for working out your own salvation. The scripture says, in fear and trembling, the NET translates it as awe and reverence. Ultimately, your faith is your business, and no one can do it for you. I got saved at the age of seven, but then I had to do business with God as a young man. Because you can't lean. Yes, you can glean, right, from your parents, from the upbringing. But it's between you and God. It's between you and God. And there's no one else that can stand in that gap. So this morning, if you don't know him, if this seems so far-fetched, and I meant to say this earlier when I was talking about Matt and being gooder, but thank you, Kaylee, for just the joy of the Lord, the excitement. I was watching her during worship, and it just made me so excited just for youth and vitality. But this morning, if you do not know the Lord or God, and no one can know that, right, but you. At the end, these, these foolish versions, they thought they had it all worked out, and they got to the end. And the truth of their hearts was exposed. But if you don't know the Lord this morning, if you just hear this whole thing about the gospel, and, or maybe this morning... It's hitting you differently all of a sudden. And you're like, you know, I don't know if I'm where I need to be. And you want to make a personal statement, a confession, and make him in the right place in your heart. I'm going to take this moment and open the altar. If anyone wants to accept the Lord.
as their personal Savior, you can come now.